oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Big thanks to the Offshore Technology Conference for allowing us to be here. Even bigger thanks to Fifth Ring for sponsoring the Offshore Technology Conference Podcast Pavilion. Fifth Ring is a global B2B marketing and communications agency with over 30 years of experience in the energy sector and beyond. And its presence in Houston, Aberdeen, and Singapore enables the agency to help companies all over the world build better brands and sell more stuff. Learn more about Fifth Ring by visiting fifthring.com. Link is in the show notes below. Welcome to Oil & Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil & Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE and founded the Small Oil & Gas Consultancy and became a podcast host. Uh, So now I'd like to introduce our uh, guest for today, Dr. Scott Tinker. Scott is a worldwide speaker, many of you know him, but Scott, I'm going to let you go ahead and give us a little bit about your background. Thanks for joining us today. You bet, Elena. It's really good to be here with you. Enjoyed that presentation this morning. I'm a geologist, and I was born into the oil and gas business. Dad was a geologist with Shell for for, uh, 39 years, and I... 39 years, it's in your blood. I know, and then my son's a geologist as well, so it's in my blood. (laughs) I worked in the oil and gas industry for 17 years myself, um, E&P, but research, Marathon's lab at the end, and then I went to the University of Texas 23 years ago now as director of the Bureau of Economic Geology and have built that up to quite a substantial group, 250 people. We do energy and environmental and economic research around the world. And then also, uh, that's one leg of the stool, and then I started a not-for-profit called the Switch Energy Alliance, which is film-based energy education, global education, in high school classrooms and college campuses and public, uh, lots of different things we do there. And the third leg of the stool is, uh, I have a company actually called Tinker Energy Associates, and I sit on boards and speak to boards and speak to big companies and, and big events like this and have a lot of fun doing that, so... Keeps me off the streets. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I want to know what vitamins you take. You uh, uh, speak almost every day, uh, as well as the various recordings that you do. We are catching you between speaking engagements here in Houston, so we're very grateful for, oh. for you being here with us. Uh, you're, you're a known quantity in our oil and gas industry, and part of it has to do uh, with the fact, well, of course, technical acumen, subject matter expertise, and the, the leadership that you express on the Bureau of Economic Geology. But also, you're able to put together this whole uh, energy story for people who are outside of the oil and gas industry in a way that helps people understand the complexity of it, mm-hmm. both you know, policy, technology, financial, leading us to energy security, economic mm-hmm. security, 
national security and environmental sustainability with respect to protection of the earth as we produce these critical dense energy forms. And so I'm always really excited to, to talk with you. And, and actually, you and I met 23 years ago when I was with the Department of Energy. My hair was dark then. It's not now. So uh, we won't talk about that. But, but, uh, but Scott, so you told us a little bit how you got into the, um, into the uh, oil and gas business. Um, tell us how you view the changes and how we define upstream, if you will, just briefly, um, and then we'll get on some points there. But some of our audiences, uh, uh, some of the members of our audience are not subject matter experts, and so upstream we're constantly defining it. But you've seen some changes possibly over the year on um, the skill sets needed in other subsurface energy forms. Yeah, yeah. All of our energy comes from the earth in some way and, and whether it's produced directly, oil and natural gas, coal, uranium, thorium, the kinds of things that we produce by drilling or mining, uh, all the metals for solar panels and wind turbines and batteries come from the earth. Uh, it all does. And people say, well, nuclear, well, that's uranium and thorium. So we mine or drill for all of those things and then they, they capture energy whether it's uh, direct, uh, again, liquids, gases, coal, or, or we capture them in order to make solar panels and wind turbines and batteries to store electricity and, and capture the sun and the wind. And then we use it and it wears out, unfortunately. So you end up with either burning it directly, and that goes in the atmosphere, CO2, when you burn coal, oil, natural gas, or the panels wear out and the, and the turbine blades wear out and the batteries wear out and we end up dumping those in landfills, which is what we do with most of them. So you mine, you make, you dump, and then you do it again. So this is the whole challenge of energy is it's not renewable. None of it is. It all takes earth resources and I don't mind that. I'm a geologist. Uh, things come from the earth, but we got to be really, really thoughtful about how we do that well environmentally and economically so that the world can have access to energy resources and we protect our environment while we're doing it. That's the great dual challenge. And I, think, I just don't think, Elena, most people understand that everything in our lives depends on energy. When I gave a TED Talk last year, I had a little Dr. Seuss moment, you know, where I had these images, our pets and our jets, our homes and our phones, <laughs> our heaters and our beaters, our, you know, our water, our daughters, our sons and everything they put on. And I went on and on. I love yeah, and so, and everybody was looking because they just don't realize it's not just about a plug and a, and a pump, it's everything. And that's the great challenge as energy does so many good things for us, we got to do it really well. Absolutely. Well, you did just give a very nice presentation here at OTC, um, we're talking about balancing these uh, various factors. Um, you also talked about... Um, some of the information, like your slides are fabulous, your pictures, your photos are fabulous. Um, tell people where you can, where, where they can get some of this information. Tell us about Switch Energy. Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah. yeah. About, gosh, close to 15 years ago, I was doing an interview for a filmmaker who was making an early film on shale gas in the Barnett. And afterwards, Harry Lynch said, hey, I love your stuff. Have you ever thought about making a film on energy? Or writing a book, he said. I said, no, I'm too lazy. <laughs> he, said, he said, how about making a movie? Sure. This was 08, 09. So we set off to make a film on global energy before the Great Recession of 09. Oh, right, right. I started raising money, and off we went on our grand global adventure. 
And it was pretty cool. We decided not to make anybody look bad or good. or We just wanted to see the pros and cons of all forms of energy, where they were best in the world. Went to, you know, 11 countries and filmed you know, solar in Spain and wind in Denmark and geothermal in Iceland and nuclear in France, etc. And demand as well in India and other places. So we released the film Switch in 2011-12. And that really was probably the first film of its kind on the global energy transition. The pro, but we were looking at the pros and cons of all forms. In a balanced way, in a, in a fair, As objective way. as we could be, you know, and I think we ended up being pretty objective because they all have pros and cons. So that film came out, and it, well, it got scooped up by educators. Scooped up? Yeah. They wanted to show it to their they students. Did. 50 countries translated. Is it still available? Oh, yeah, and they're still using it. And What's it the re- name of it? Switch. Oh, well, that's the that's original Switch. Switch. Yeah, okay. so it, it's gotten used and literally millions of times around the world and still is in college campuses and so we ended up parsing that into episodes and made a lot of small short content an energy lab with me in a goofy white lab coat and goggles on doing 29 experiments i think i did see that i think i did well how do you make a battery and blah blah what's in frac fluid so these are the things that we built on harry went off he's a filmmaker and did some beautiful work on mental health and classical music he's still on PBS with that, and we got back together to make our film on energy poverty, looking at a different part of the world and a lot more people, called Switch On, and that's our feature link there, and again, it, that's when we formed the not-for-profit Switch Energy Alliance, and been using that as a vehicle then to provide this film-based content across the platform, and it's free. It's free to teachers and educators, it's free for uh, corporations to use and lunch and learns it's free a beautiful museum film five minute called energy makes our world plays on the imax and the houston museum of science and oh, wow. perot and other museums okay. highly hollywood hollywood produced so a lot of content there so i could get it also and show it to my family and my friends yeah, yeah all these things are available for free go switch on.org and there they are They're on youtube as well okay. so it's it's kind of led me down a path, and I speak a lot, you know, 60 countries, uh, boards and C-suites and corporations, but also academic institutions and NGOs. Our PBS series uh, called Energy Switch Now, which is a talk show on energy and climate that I host two guests on every episode. So, on PBS? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, is that available sort of linked online as well? It or is. How would- it is. It started just for season one was released last September of 22. We were just released season two, 12 episodes each. It's the PBS streams 24 episodes. Now there are 25 minutes each. We talk for a lot longer than that, but reduced it down again two very high level guests. They don't agree on everything. And we pick, we pick a topic. We get in a lane and really talk about that thing. People can see the nuance. They can see the pros and cons. It's not binary, black and white, clean and dirty. It allows for real civil dialogues to happen. That's the only requirement of our guests. We're civil about it, but we don't have to agree. But we do it in a way that's fact-based and, and, and I think, fun, too. So a lot of, we've already filmed season three. It'll come out it's in post-production now. It'll come out in the fall, and we'll film season four in August this year. So PBS streams all those episodes, and then... They're on over 250 PBS stations across the nation now, 100 million households. I will definitely look that up. So these are energy subject matter experts that most likely don't agree on everything. Correct. And that's part of what you try to set up so that people can hear the pros and cons, as you said, or um, the back and forth. Because, uh, you know, we 
don't all know everything that there is to know, and certainly we don't know everything That's about right. energy, even though we are energy. In uh, fact, a friend of yours, Julio Friedman, is on Julio. one on hydrogen with Steve Humberg, right. who is the oh. chief scientist at Environmental Defense Fund. And they had a wonderful dialogue on hydrogen. They didn't agree on everything, and as, as expected. Um, so we, we, again, really top people. We have NGOs. We have industry people. We have academics. We've got government folks talking about a variety of topics that everybody's interested in. And those who want to know a little bit more than the, the binary dialogue they hear on the or sound bites. The morning, they I mean, sound bites. People are getting tired of sound bites, I they think, because they're a little confusing. So, yep. so you had three seasons are available? Two. Two, two are released. Are uh, the third has been filmed and is in post, almost finished. We'll release it in the fall, and we'll film season four in August to be released next spring. So we'll do two seasons a year, 24 new episodes, and we're going to release them as uh, on NPR oh, uh, and as podcasts on Spotify and Apple. So there, you don't have to see our lovely faces in this beautiful studio with four cameras. <laughs> well, you can listen while you're driving. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, that's, it's fun to watch expressions. So yeah, that's well, the fun that's part true. of watching people respond like, huh? Yeah, yeah. But you can, they, they play perfectly as a, as a radio or dialogue only. So we're going to get them out there that way, too. Uh, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's fun. So much content is so important because, as you say, it is tricky. There are just so many, I mean, even day to day, um, I make make a decision in one direction or another depending on the context that I'm involved in. So when it comes to a policy and technology interface, which is, you know, what I did for 30-plus years, um, you know, there are just so many things to consider. And um, how do you balance, you know, people have different priorities. People have different needs. How does one balance those kinds of things? I think you mm-hmm. talked a little bit about that. Yeah. It's interesting if you, I've been fortunate to travel into 60 countries and seen probably the most severe wealth and the most severe poverty and everything in between. It doesn't mean I understand either. I, I've been in the poverty, but I don't understand it because I know I'm going home. They're not. They're not. And that's, it's, that's it's not a live. few hundred million people. It's billions of people in the world today. So I think as global citizens, we in the rich world, and we are in the rich world, us, Western Europe, and a few other places, need to think about that global citizen, the seven billion people in the world out of eight who don't have the kinds of things we just take for granted. And I'm not saying we're spoiled. We were born here. It's, it's what, how we live. But understanding that is very difficult. So that's why we make, take you there almost on a global adventure, show it to you. As you think about those global citizens, how are they going to come up into, out of the emerging and developing world into the developed world, which they will? Can we do it really well? Do it in a, sm- a reasonably smooth way so they have access to the kinds of things and minimize environmental impacts? Or are we going to do it not so well with a lot of global conflict, a lot of environmental damage, and other kinds of things? And, and nobody knows, but I think... I believe our young people, and I have kids ranging from 33 to 23, four of them, uh, they are smart. They will solve this if given all the information, and, and they can digest the complexities of that and deal with it. They can, they can handle this. 
It doesn't have to be made simple and binary, you know, good and bad, clean and dirty, believer, denier, dialogue just doesn't work when you're starting to think about the global economy and how energy plays in that. So I'm very, very confident that we can do this in a, in a wonderful way if, in fact, we take the time to dive into the information and think about everyone in the world, not just us and our circumstances. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why your, um, your efforts, your work, and, and that of your colleagues to uh, put this information, this factual information, uh, into um, digestible chunks, uh, different formats, whatever appeals to you, you know, visual, audio, combination of both, um, to help people sort of because you can't learn everything at once if that is not your area. I mean, I am an engineer. I'm a petroleum engineer, not a biologist. My husband's a biologist, and he's always trying to tell me stuff, and I can get, you know, some of it, only if I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, of course, that's, that's part of it. But, but even, you know, medicine is very dependent on energy. I mean, what's not dependent on energy? So energy is kind of in a different category, it would is. you say, that um, everybody needs to know some of it. it is. The challenge is we, most people think they do, <laughs> but they, we really don't. It, uh, look, I'm 41 years in it and there's so much I don't understand. So we can't make assumptions about what we understand and then base those on a v- pretty simple dialogue. It's, energy is a complicated space. And, but again, it's not that it's, doesn't mean it's not solvable, but it's just not simple. You asked about upstream. I know there's a lot of worry in those in the oil and gas industry, specifically, particularly young people. Are, are, am I an industry that's ruining the world? Uh, does it have a future? Uh, yes, and or no, and yes, you're not ruining the world. It does have environmental impacts. Continue to work to clean those up. So do solar, wind, and batteries, and nuclear. Everything does. Um, does it have a future? Of course it does. The world... We're going from 8 billion people, which happened last November, towards 10 to 11 billion, barring any major disasters. And and again, warming the planet one degree and a half will not kill billions of people. That that won't be a major human death disaster, climate change. So we're going toward 10 to 11 billion people. The world is going to need a tremendous amount of energy as they begin to lift themselves up. All of those human citizens of the world, tremendous amount of energy, oil and gas, a big piece of that, a little more than half today and probably will remain at that percentage level for quite some time. So the world needs people working the upstream side of this. That's where you, those people who explore for and produce the oil and gas around the world from a variety of reservoirs and and then move it to the places it's refined and processed and transported to where it's consumed. There's a huge upstream and midstream industry there that is so vital for young people to participate in. It's technical, it's dynamic, it's scary at times, it's volatile, but it's a remarkable career. In addition to producing, we've got to be able to produce other things from the subsurface that people with those same skills can do. Heat from the earth, we call that geothermal. Putting away carbon, CO2, we call that carbon capture and storage, huge subsurface challenges. Storing hydrogen, 
producing it and storing it, it'll be stored in the subsurface at scale. So that's a major challenge for us. On and on we see the need for people who understand the subsurface and how to manage it well, produce and read and dispose of the products from that production and manage it really well into the future. So I I love the landscape for how things learn. And by the way, when you're doing it, you're going to be lifting the world out of poverty. And that's a pretty cool thing. That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, yeah some of the pictures that you showed about um, lifestyle that people are um, you know, subject to because of lack of energy or lack of dense energy, um, those are pretty shocking, pretty shocking. And some of the mining practices in order to give us raw critical, critical materials that we need in order to pursue other forms. But is there a, there's a place for, um, you know, all of the above, right? I mean, if, I just feel that yeah. if um, you have, a, like if you're in Arizona or someone, you have, somewhere you have a lot of sun, you should, you should have a little solar. Um, I don't know where the wind blows, but I just feel as, you know, if West Texas, does, West Texas <laughs> you got, you've got yeah. wind, you should, you should use the wind as well. I mean, yeah. there's not a perfect energy no. They all have. Give us a little, just something that we can put on our fingers here of one pro, one con for you know the five major energy mm, funds. Or yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there is nothing perfect. You know, if you if you go back to the original energy, which is hay and wood and biomass, which we've been using for over a thousand years or more as humans, uh, great stuff. But at the end of the day, you burn all those things, and they're carbon-based fuels. So there's the CO2 emissions, and then there's the deforestation, and all that goes along with harvesting biomass of various kinds. Converting uh, various biomass, like uh, switchgrass and miscanthus and shrub willow and other things, to liquid biofuels is not an easy thing to do. You're converting a carbohydrate to a hydrocarbon. Still carbon and hydrogen, different form. That's got a lot of environmental challenge. You've got to grow it first and then convert it and move it, and, and then you end up burning it. So that has emissions related to it. Coal, nature did the work, made it very dense, compressed plant matter, but mining that is challenging depending on where you are. Some's more destructive than others. Then we move it and burn it. Atmospheric emissions, not just CO2, socks, NOx, mercury, particulates, other kinds of things. And then oil. Oil is liquid. Again, nature (laughs) turned some of these carbon plants into liquids, complex hydrocarbon chains. And again, you got to drill for that. You got to move it. um, You got to refine it and then put in our vehicles. And it's extremely efficient. When you think of the useful work, by that I mean something that happens either move or heat, motion or heat from that. But it makes emissions, CO2 emissions, and other, other particulates as well. Then comes methane, which is CH4, mostly hydrogen, at least by, by, by atom, <laughs> um, and other gases, propane, butane, pentane. And, and when you burn those, they do useful work, a lot of heat, but they don't have typically the sulfur as much, or the nitrogen, the particulates, or mercury and other things like those solid liquids do. So better for environmentally. And finally, into uranium and thorium for nuclear, which come from the earth. And we use the heat of that radioactive reaction to boil water, make steam, turn a turbine, run a generator. It's the same electricity generation process as burning coal or gas or oil or other heat sources. But there's no emissions from that at the source, but you do have the mining of the uranium. And then you got a, there's an intense radioactive uh, 
you know, whatever, I won't use the word waste, but let's call them, you know, vision products that come out of that process and we've got to manage those. So what do you do with that? And there are things to do, but most people vitrify them or solidify them and put them down into temporary storage solutions, concrete or dry cask or swimming pools and that kind of thing. And so those are the primary forms of energy and there's there's others. There's waves and wind or uh, waves and, and uh, tides. Energy. Yeah, marine energy and geothermal heat. I didn't mention geothermal. You gotta drill for it. You know, there's near surface geothermal but getting deeper heat. So none of these things comes without environmental impact. Those countries that have the most wealth tend to be the most regulated and have on a per unit basis lower environmental impacts. So I'm much more comfortable with the industries in the wealthy world producing these things because I know they're gonna be regulated. I'd love to see all industries come up to that standard as the world lifts itself out of poverty. And that's what coming from poverty does people tend to get regulated systems as their economies grow. A very powerful part of, of net zero poverty, which is a term I first published on just a couple months net ago. Net zero poverty. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's thinking about getting everyone in the world up to a standard that they can have modern services and don't spend all their days doing some kind of work like we used to do here just to survive. And there's still a lot of people in the world that are like that, and some in various stages of transition. It's a continuum. So if we could get that addressed and solved, I'd love young people to sink their teeth into that. Elena, I'd love to see Greta Thunberg and others um, lead them, the movements of young people to address economic poverty, which addresses is addressed by energy as well. You'll see annually, you'll see change happen. You'll see the remarkable positive impacts of that effort. You'll start to see the environmental impacts improving again because they'll have the money to be able to address these other challenges other than eating, shelter, um, uh, education a little bit, and clothing, basic human needs. It's, it's very, very powerful. Yeah, yeah. So those of us who are educated and, um, have had, and have the privilege of living in places where we take all of these commodities for granted, basically, we... We can just flip a switch and um, have the energy that we need. Uh, but being fair to those who don't and using our brains and our opportunities and our skills to bring that to the world, is that's zero poverty. I, yeah. I think that's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's such a powerful thought, but it's very deployable and, again, measurable. So you'd be working on something positive. I'm not saying that we can't push hard on those things that have negative impacts as well. We've got to continue to do that. It, it makes for improvement. But if all we're doing is protesting any kind of progress, then we will not lift the world up and the world stays pinned. And I'm not talking again about a few hundred million people. These are big, big numbers. Three out of four globally that ha are living some level of energy poverty, either from none to unreliable. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great global challenge we face. Yeah. I just love talking with you about this because you have so much data associated with, you know, your talking points. As you said, your information is available online. Switch.org. Switchon.org. Switchon.org. We'll yeah. put the address in the in It's the all show free. Notes. And it's on YouTube and every other fun place as well. All our films and film-based things. And 
I've got a TED Talk out there for those interested, 17 minutes along these lines. I've put a slide deck up, all animated PowerPoint with my voice under it so you could hear what I would say for you to download. Give your own talks. Love to see that happen. We've got the PBS series, a museum film uh, out now, short five-minute thing. And we're in K-12 through classrooms across the nation, 7,000 teachers and 60,000 students, AP Environmental Science are using the Switch Classroom, which is our platform. We built it with teachers. They help write the curriculum. The AP scores are going up, and it meets College Board standards, but they're getting a broader education than they were before. Just looking at the pros and cons, the critical thinking around these. Critical thinking, absolutely. That is why you go to school, to learn how to think. It is. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and and just to... um, uh, share one of the uh, things that you shared with us in the presentation earlier today was you challenged uh, us to like educate ourselves on the complexities and nuances of energy, all energy, and the impact that we have in the world, and including um, zero poverty, net zero, net poverty. zero poverty, <laughs> and um, to talk to twenty people about what you've learned. I mean, yeah. that's that's very exciting. Yeah. I, I think that that is a way to really dive into some of these nuances and then the part you don't quite get right we'll go back and read it again yeah. or listen to it again or whatever right. it'll be available online there i think young people in the oil and gas industry the coal industry even nuclear are concerned about the industry they're, they're told they're ruining the planet and this kind of thing well you are if you don't do it well but you, the benefits of access to energy are so overwhelmingly positive so there is a balance here and all forms, as we've already talked about, have environmental impacts. There's nothing that's perfect at all. It's not binary. So I think for young people who are just coming into the sector, it's a very powerful thing to think about your, the positive impacts you're having. So the reason I put this deck up is you can download it. All the data sources are there with references. It's animated the way I do it. You know, it takes me forever, but you can click on it and pick the slides you like and go speak to 20 people. Give a talk. It'll be hard. Modify it. Make scary. it your own. It's scary. <laughs> but think about it to a classroom, for sure. If you're not there, somebody else is. A, a civic group, a scout troop, a, a church group, or your own family. Just start. Give these little talks to 20 people. That's why the deck is there. And, and by doing that, you end up learning. When you teach, you learn. And then you'll have more tools in your toolkit to talk to your friends and neighbors and the person next to you on the flight. When they say, what do you do? Don't mumble it. You know, say proudly in this industry. I mean, the oil and gas industry. Lift the world out of poverty. What do you do? That's right. Lift the world out of poverty. I love that. Lift the world out of poverty. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Scott, I'm sorry. We're almost at the end of our time. I want to give you a chance to say, you know, one or two more things that you would want uh, people to know, as I said, to put the, um, all this information, all of your um, resources uh, uh, in the show notes so people can find them there. But what, what would be the last yeah. things you would share with our audience? Oh, boy. I know. You, you just, you're such a so, prolific speaker I'm, and I'm you've studied so long and wor- traveled yeah. around the world. Yeah, couple things maybe one I would say get out and see the world it really changes your um, level of tolerance for human difference when you see the world and we all need tolerance and humility in our in ourselves and in our lives Uh, the world does not all live the same I'm often asked what advice would you give and and rather than saying follow your passion 
I might say, say yes. <laughs> say yes a lot. And what that does is you end up trying things, and some of them you might not like. You won't be passionate about it, and you'll learn that. But I think if you say yes a lot, you end up with experiences that allow you to find your passion. And the more experiences you have, the broader that palette will be from which to blend and choose. So I'm often, people, how did you get into the filmmaking business? I said yes a lot. I wasn't always in the film business, but I run a big research lab at UT as well, 250 people doing deep research on these things called the Bureau of Economic Geology. And so say yes, and that will allow you to find your passion, and then you can pursue that, and then it won't feel like you're working. Yeah, yeah. And as in my case, you're okay to, like, try this and finish that and then try something else, and, you know, it can do it in order. It's not all or nothing. Uh, Absolutely. It is uh, just uh, evolving as we can all evolve. It's not a sick... You know, the whole, your career and your life is unfortunately and maybe fortunately not sequential like that. Yeah. You end up over here and you go, how did I get here? I don't know, but it's kind of fun. So, Well, Dr. Scott Tinker, director of the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas, Austin, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure, Elena, and thanks for doing this. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. This is Elena Milkich, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.